0: This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence.
1: Hello and welcome to Coffee Has Shots, a Spectator's daily political podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by Isva Hardman and James Versaif. Now, the government's Northern Ireland Protocol Bill has passed its second reading with a majority of 74. It's about the worst summer unhappy MPs here. How did this play out? So, we had a lot of speeches from already
2: prominent critics of Boris Johnson in this bill debate. Uh, so, we had Theresa May, we had Andrew Mitchell. Uh, had Simon Hoare, who is the chair of the Northern Ireland Select Committee, and all of them said they couldn't support the bill. They criticised it in very strong terms. Had Andrew Mitchell saying it, it brazenly broke international law. Theresa May listing the conditions for supporting it and saying that no, didn't, it didn't meet any of those conditions. And also complaining that the protocol had, had never had the support of the DUP. So she she... She said rhetorically she didn't really understand what had changed (laughs) to, to necessitate this. And so you had a lot of criticism from those figures, but no one voted against it. What instead happened was there were a lot of abstentions. Now, it's very difficult to gauge what are real abstentions and what aren't, because... The MPs who didn't vote on this include people who very much support it, but aren't in the country, including Boris Johnson himself, and also MPs who are sick and so on. So it it can be quite difficult to gauge what is a a deliberate abstention and what isn't. But certainly Theresa May didn't vote for it. And the others who I just listed, Andrew Mitchell, Robert Buckland, um, and a number of other prominent figures. What we now have is that the bill has passed its second reading, which is the very first vote vote on it in Parliament. And we'll go into a much shortened committee stage and then have report stage and third reading before moving up to the House of Lords, where obviously it's going to face a lot of trouble as well. And that's where the the main problems are. But the Commons revolt is still likely at report stage and third reading. And you are going to have various figures tabling amendments, to this legislation. And I think it's worth pointing out that some of the MPs who did vote in favour last night, were still quite sceptical about the scope of this bill. So you had some MPs like Robin Miller, for instance, who said that they would support it, they felt it was important to have for the government to have these bargaining negotiating chips. And that, you know, th- if there wasn't, this wasn't a perfect bill, but no bill was going to be perfect, but saying that they were uneasy about the extent of the powers that this bill gives to to the government and that they were hopeful that there would be some kind of amendments along the way. Now, it, I think it's quite hard to imagine that given the accelerated timetable that the government's seeking, that they're going to want to get bogged down in lots of amendments But it depends how strongly these MPs like Robin Miller feel really about the powers or whether they were just uh, putting down a a small marker here. Just one other thing to say is that in the run up to this second reading vote, there were lots of rumours swirling in the Conservative Party about threats from the whips to remove the Tory whip from anyone who voted against this bill, although I have to say those rumours were being propagated by the rebels as much as they were by, by those around Boris Johnson. I don't know whether it was partly to sort of send a message about the kind of um, leadership he's still pursuing as Prime Minister from his critics. But also, there was also a willingness on the part of the whips to slip people to, uh, to, to allow them a day off the estate.
1: James, when it comes to where the potential tension within the party could, I suppose, come to its crescendo, is it actually what happens if the bill becomes law? Because ultimately, the ERG were fairly positive in some of its comments yesterday, and so far we haven't seen that huge retaliation from Brussels, even if there's proposed legal action. So therefore, do you, do you have a situation where effectively, if this doesn't lead to a negotiation, and there is, for example, a trade war in response that could create unhappiness and vice versa, if they do compromise, that could upset the ERG?
0: Yes, I mean, that's right. But I think there's another scenario, which is that the House of Lords I mean look, I don't totally think that Isabel is right about trying to work out what's an abstention and what's not an abstention. Nikki De Costa, the former legislative director at number ten, she thinks there are about forty odd genuine abstentions in that in that in those numbers. And I think the challenge is gonna come is the House of Lords is gonna amend this bill quite heavily, I suspect. And what then happens when the government tries to take those amendments out? Out When they come back to the comments, I mean that that is one potential flashpoint now look Theresa May is making kind of Ted Heath look like someone who has uh, wished their uh, their successor well in their job, but I thought there was also something interesting in what she said last night when she said, "Look, the European Union is not going to negotiate with Boris Johnson at the moment because he looks too politically weak, and she said, "Look, I know from my own experience that that's what happens now." This hope might be the father of the thought here on behalf of people in Brussels, but there is definitely a view in Brussels that it would be better on the protocol to wait and see what happens to Boris Johnson's premiership, because if you've got a new British Prime Minister, that's the person to whom, if you're prepared to flex a bit more, maybe make some concessions, you'd rather make it to Boris Johnson's successor than to Johnson himself.
1: Now... In other news, Nicola Sturgeon is unveiling her plan later today when it comes to her hope to have a second independence referendum, ideally in October 2023. Isabel, Nicola Sturgeon has said this has to be done for a legal manner, really, and that's the path to actually securing independence. But it's quite hard to see currently what her options are.
2: Yeah, so she's giving a route map today on uh, independence and she's got a... A plan for a referendum in October 2023 but she's not introducing a bill to introduce a second referendum today and it's unlikely to be introduced before the summer recess in the Scottish Parliament which starts at the end of this week. So and obviously she doesn't have the support or consent of the uh, Westminster government for this Either, And you've got the Scottish Conservatives and Scottish Labour saying it's it's a distraction from issues that Nicola Sturgeon does have control over, but, but that she isn't leading on. So this is as much as anything else, quite sort of well-trodden tactic by the SNP of trying to move the conversation back to independence without necessarily actually having much intend- intention of of a vote going ahead just yet.
1: And James, just finally, we have the 1922 elections coming up. The new committee will be decided before the summer recess. You were one of the first to write about this in your, in your cover piece. And of course, they have a particular importance this year because it would be the 1922 committee that could decide whether to change the leadership rules. Now, I've had Steve Baker today announce his candidacy. How is it shaping up when it comes to the fight, as opposed to get lots of rebels on the executive, who, which a majority could choose to change the rules versus the government talker trying to elect some loyalists?
0: So, you know, the 18-strong executive... Will, will make the decision about whether to change the rules or not. I thought what Steve Baker's piece in the Times say was quite cautious in that it was basically making clear that there were circumstances in which he would change the rules, but he was, he was keeping those fairly limited. I, I personally think that if you try... I mean, there is an inevitability about there being slates being run by one side or the other. But I think if you look at the, the no-confidence ballots, right... Some people say, oh, but that suggests that 75% of a non-payroll vote voted against Boris Johnson. Well, that assumes that the entire payroll voted for Boris Johnson, which I think most people in Westminster would be sceptical of as a suggestion. But I mean, there's, I think it is almost certain that there was a majority on the backbenches. Who voted no confidence, and I suspect you will end up with an executive that reflects that fact. I think, as with Steve Baker's piece today, people aren't going to run around saying, "I propose changing the rules." As on the, my first, the first thing I will do is propose changing the rules. I, but I think people will more say, "Well, look, if the privileges committee says this." if Boris Johnson does that, then those are the circumstances in which a rule change will be considered. And I think that ultimately, it is what the wisest old owls in the Tory party make this point. But the 1922 committee exists to represent the views of conservative backbenchers. If most conservative backbenchers want another confidence vote within the next 12 months, they will get one.
1: Thank you, James. Thank you, Isabel. And thank you for listening. Spectator subscription is
2: now better value than ever before. As a new subscriber joining today you'll pay just one pound a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. If you want the magazine delivered to your door on top of that it's only one pound a week extra and your first month is free without obligation. To subscribe today go to spectator.co.uk forward slash unlimited